Welcome to this message in the Biblical Worldview series. This is a series of messages for Christians. A 2020 Barna poll showed that only 6% of people who call themselves Christians have a worldview that is aligned with the Word of God. That means that 94% of Christians have a view of the world that is more like the world than it is like Jesus. In Revelation 3, Jesus warned us this would happen, that the church would be lukewarm. He also said in that chapter that he would spew that church out of his mouth. He is disgusted by it. This series is for people who don't want to be lukewarm. This series will challenge you to examine what you believe. Keep an open mind and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth to you in these messages. If you sense that your view of the world is out of alignment with God's word, ask the Holy Spirit to help you change. In Matthew 7, Jesus said there are two paths that we can walk in this life. One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. A biblical worldview is the only one that leads to life and the abundant life that Jesus promised. If you have any questions about anything you hear in this message, let me know. So grab your Bible and let's see what God has to say to us today. It's the uh, third Sunday of the month. We will be taking a break from our study through the book of Zechariah in, uh, and take some time and continue our series, Biblical Worldview, aligning your view of the world with God's word. So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hopefully, it's, if it's okay with you, it probably isn't going to matter because I'm going to do it anyways. We're going to go to several different places in the Bible today. So 2 Peter chapter 3. When God first created the world, he made man, and the very first thing he did was give him a job. In Genesis 2.15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. God made this planet, and he made it for his creation. He created, he created everything that we see, everything that we know, and then he created his highest creation, mankind. That, that we were his highest creation, and he put us on this planet, and he expects his creation to take care of his creation. He expects his highest creation to take care of the rest of creation, to take care of this planet. Unfortunately, we know that Adam and Eve sinned, and when, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered God's highest creation, but not just his highest creation. It entered all of creation. So all of creation became corrupted by sin. So all the things that we see, all the bad and ugly and horrible things we see going on, disease and death and, and hurricanes wiping out whole states and you know tidal waves, all these different things. That's a, it's all a function of sin in that it's corrupted the created reality. And that's all a part of that. As far back as I can remember, climate activists have existed all the way back as far as I can remember, and they're predicting the coming climate apocalypse, right? The world's going to end in, you know, X number of years, they'll say. So far, every time they've been wrong. 
which kind of gives me, well, never mind, I'm not going to go there quite yet. Even at, before I was a believer, I was skeptical of these experts. I'm going to use those air quotes a lot today, these experts. Over the last few years, fear of the sun monster has reached a level of mass hysteria. And it's fascinating to me, if you take, a, if you take some time and look at our society and our culture, you see how this has permeated the entire culture, the, even down to our entertainment. What is one of the most popular themes in entertainment? It's apocalypse. You know, the world's going to end. It's either going to be a, a zombie apocalypse, it's going to be a virus that wipes out, it's going to be a meteor that crashes into the earth, it, it's going to be alien, something is going to come, and the world is going to end. And we need a hero to stand up and save us. Jesus. For some reason, they never bring him in. I don't know what the big deal is. If Jesus would just show up, all of these apocalypses would just end, right? There's, if we think, if we spend some time to really think about that, there is, there is a deep spiritual meaning to that. The reality that, that people keep imagining the end of the world. It says something, that something deep, out, deep down in the human soul understands that, that the world could end. And there's a part of us that we keep getting drawn to it that maybe we believe it should end, that there's a reason for that. And there is a reason for that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. There are people who today are genuinely afraid. Uh, they are literally terrified that mankind is going to make this planet uninhabitable. Literally, we're just going to destroy it and that all humans are going to die. And they're terrified about that. Some suggest that the only hope that this world has is to reduce the human population. And you know the number that they've been throwing around? Five hundred million. Not to reduce it by 500 million, but to reduce it down to 500 million. You know what that means? Got to do something with that other seven and a half billion. <laughs> Think about that. Recently, California passed a law that will ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. Now, I, and when I first heard that number, 2035, well, that's forever. Wait a minute. Uh, no, it's 13 years. The older I get, the shorter amount of time that actually is. 13 years, they're gonna, they will be there, and they're going to gradually increase the percentage until it's 100% no gas-powered cars in California. Now, I have a, a particular, you know, I can stand up here and make a prophecy. That law will not stand. It can't because, well, unless there's an earthquake and California falls, falls off into the ocean, maybe that'll, something's going to happen. This series is about looking at the things in the world and then comparing it to what the Bible says. And what we ought to do is we ought to develop the attitude that whatever the world says, I say, okay, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but what does God say? What does the Word say? And I understand that. Like I said, even before I was saved, I listened to what they were saying, and I said, eh, 
I'm struggling with that. You know, and, and one of the things that, that um, you know, that the, the people out there, the other side says, oh, you hate science. You're wrong about that. I love science. You know why I love science? Science does a remarkable job of confirming everything that God said. Every time they discover something new, it just reminds me what God said and how, how true everything they have. After thousands of years of science, the Bible is still as true as it ever was. Hmm, imagine that. They can't discover something that disproves the Bible because that's not possible, no matter what they discover. Whether it be the universe is much vaster than they imagined or that there's things smaller than the smallest thing that we imagined and everything in between. It, it just all confirms God. I love science. I just disagree with most of their interpretations of science. Most of their conclusions are wrong. Every time I say, the world's going to end by 2040 or 2050, and I say, no, it's not. Well, how do you know? Well, because, well, I can't say it's, it may not, it may end before that, but it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Listen, we have got to be more confident in what we believe. So that when people are saying these ridiculous things about what's going to happen in the future, we can say, no, that's not going to happen. God said it's something else is going to happen. And so if I have to pick between what the so-called experts, see, I did it again, so-called experts are saying, or what God says, guess what? You're going to lose every time. Does the Bible talk about how the world will end? Yes, quite a bit, actually. It tells us quite a bit about what is going to happen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, heavens, that's all the stuff above us, with a great noise, and the elements, that's everything that's around us, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What does that mean? It's all going to burn. What's all? All of it. Even these chairs. All the empty ones. The full ones will be okay. Keep filling them up. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The, the earth, this world, is going to end. And I believe the reality and the truth of that is written on the human heart. Cannot be denied. Cannot be cannot be you know, rejected, cannot be ignored. It's there. You know, the Bible says that God wrote eternity on the human heart. So many of these things that we read in Scripture are already hardwired into your heart and soul. You cannot ignore them. But what you can do is when they start coming up, you start imagining different ways. So I'm gonna, if I'm going to say God doesn't exist, but I believe the world's going to end, I'm going to create some way that the world's going to end. Because humans are ama amazingly imaginative. I mean, how else would they have come up with a zombie crying out loud? Crazy. Hey, you know people really love that stuff. I mean, how many seasons has The Walking Dead been around? 
I haven't watched even a single episode of it, but it's been around for like 45 years or something like that. Okay, maybe not that long, but it's been around for a long time. If I was a fan, I would probably know. I believe humans ought to take care of this planet. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. We ought to take care of this planet. We are responsible for how this planet you know, exists, and we ought, to take, we ought to do our part and take care of it. But I do not believe we ought to live in fear of the sun monster, that, that, that somehow something we're going to do is going to destroy this planet because that's not God's plan. Let's pray, and we'll ask We'll, talk, we'll ask about God's plan for the future of this planet. Heavenly Father, we do come before you, and I do lift up anyone here, Lord, that maybe does kind of fall into that camp that's afraid of what might be coming, that, you know, that, that you know, we're doing things to the environment. We are, Lord. Humans are, 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 are doing terrible things to the environment. And, Lord, that we ought to take some responsibility, and we ought to do some things to try to prevent that stuff. But at the same time, Lord, we, we can't live in fear. That You tell us not to live in fear, but to live in truth, to live in hope, to live in peace, and to live in the reality that you do have a plan. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to walk that fine line between doing what is right and living without fear in a world that is, that's messed up. And so I pray, speak to our hearts today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk today the message, the title of today's message is, what does the Bible say about the end times? The end times, another way of defining the end times are the end of the world as we know it. It's not really the end, but it's the end of what we see and understand today. The definition of end times, when we use that term in church and biblically, we're referring to the time leading up to the second coming of Christ. The, the time leading up to the second coming of Christ is the end times. The other terms that are used to describe this, uh, last days, latter days, last times, latter times, all these terms are used in the Bible. Interestingly, the term end times is not used in most translations. It's a term that we use to kind of summarize the whole concept of the last days, that time leading up to the end times. The Bible has a lot to say about the, the second coming of Christ. It said a lot about the first coming. We know a lot of it. The Gospels give us all that. Most of the New Testament is about the first coming, but then a lot of the Bible, Old and New Testament, speak about the second coming of Christ. Many books in the Old Testament have them as, as major themes. Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, many of them, um, including the book that we've been studying, Zechariah, we're in that section of Zechariah that, that focuses on the end times uh, quite a bit. Many, most books in the New Testament say something about the second coming. The, almost every book in the New Testament at, at least alludes to the second coming of Christ. And then one book, Revelation, that's its primary subject, is the second coming of Christ. It's not the end of the world. That's not the object of, of Revelation. The object of, of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. Oh, by the way, the world's going to end in the middle of it. So that, that's, that's your summary of the book of Revelation. Yeah, the reason why we study prophecy, you know, some, people, some churches don't mess with prophecy. They don't like prophecy. But the reason why we love prophecy and we study prophecy is because all 
unfulfilled prophecy is pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of it. There are no prophecies that are unfulfilled that don't have to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we love studying those things. We love looking at them. We love looking around and seeing, oh, look, that we can see that's, that's a, a sign of, of what this prophecy is about. That's a, a partial fulfillment. That's a setting up for, for a fulfillment of this prophecy because it's pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we like, does anybody care about that? Yes, we care about that. Why? Because that means Jesus is going to come and get us, right? And that's, a, that's, that's something to say. How, how, somebody say hallelujah. We love that. We love the fact that Jesus is going to come and get us. And we, we study prophecy because it reminds us of that. It points to that. You know, but we also have the other side of that. And we recognize, okay, there's another side of the, of, of the second coming of Christ that isn't so pleasant. And that's God's judgment of this world. And that's where these end times, these, these you know, end of the world, you know, apocalyptic speaking and talking and realities, why they are so relevant to us. We've got to remind ourselves, anytime somebody brings up this apocalyptic language, it doesn't relate to the Bible and, and scripture, we ought, to, we ought to kind of help them to shift over into the truth. Because yes, the world is going to end, but not the way you think it is. Let me tell you about how it actually end. Why should we care? And I'll tell you why. We love, we love studying prophecy for that reason because it points us to the fact that Jesus is coming. He's going to come and get his church. And, and, then, and then you and me and everyone else that we love that loves Jesus is going to be there with him. And going to do that, going to be there forever. And that could be soon, right? Hallelujah. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We will be back in 2 Peter, but go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible tells us what to be watching for in the end times. We're, we're given signs, we're the pointers, things to look at and say, okay, that's pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Jesus talked a lot about it uh, in Matthew 24, Luke 13, and no, Luke 21, Mark 13, um, you know, there's a, he says a lot about his coming. He said far too much for us to be able to even summarize everything that he said in, in this amount of time because for some reason people don't want me to go for two hours, four hours probably, six hours maybe. I don't know. Paul told Timothy... There are things that you can be watching for, things that you can see, things that we can, we can evaluate our, our culture and our society and say, okay, that's a sign. That's a sign that the end might be coming. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, but, in, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. In the last days, the days before Christ comes, perilous times will come. Perilous, that word perilous can be translated as troublesome, difficult, harsh, fierce, or violent. I, I think that's a fairly good description of the world we're living in today. It doesn't sound like fun, right? He goes on to elaborate, verse 2. For men will be lovers of themselves. Gosh, if you want to just get a, a a, a two-verse picture of our culture, it's right here, three-verse. 
four verse. Gosh, some, some number of verses. Let's just read them. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is what invariably happens if people reject God and despise his word, that is what people do. That's the natural byproduct. If you kick God out, if you, if you, if you ignore God's word or despise God's word, that is what always will happen, always. doesn't matter what else is going on in your culture. That will always be what your culture devolves into, always. If you re- reject God, and his word. People will come, become self-absorbed. They, will, they will, can only see the world through the lens of their wrong, godless ideologies. And they will always, always become more and more corrupt. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter told us how people would respond when we try to warn them. You know, they, it's interesting, you watch um, you know, the, 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 the sun monster advocates, activists, the, the climate activists, if you disagree with them, oh my gosh, they become absolutely violent. It's unbelievable to watch them. If you disagree with them, this is what you get. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both, wait, am I in the right place? Yes, whew, I, I didn't recognize that first verse. I recognize it, but <sighs> take a breath. Which I stir up pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of, the commandment of us, the apostle, the Lord, Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, their own passions, their own desires, is what he's saying there, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Another word for scoffer is mocker. If you, if you disagree with the experts, they will, they will mock you as being absolutely ridiculous and, 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 and meaningless and, and empty-headed. If you warn them about the truth of God, oh, don't listen to Rick. He's always talking about Jesus and you know that stuff. Where is he? Where is his coming? 2,000 years you've been talking about Jesus coming back. Where is he? Hang on. Hang on. We should expect to be mocked. And you know the sad thing is, is the culture has created absolutely gutless Christians. They won't, they won't do it for fear of being canceled. 
I mean, if you are afraid to talk about God and his truth for the fear that somebody might disapprove, that's cowardice, and we can't do it. There are billions of people that are racing to destruction, and we should care about that. I wish, it, I wish it wasn't just the culture that has a problem. The Bible says that even many who call themselves Christians will not remain faithful in the end. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2, it says this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, that means the end times, some will depart from the faith, departing from the faith in Jesus Christ, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul's not pulling any punches here, and he's saying that some churches are going to, and we already see it happening all around us, they're going to be teaching things that are demonic, flat-out demonic. And I, I, again, this is one of those things that people, for some reason, are afraid to talk about, to say, to look at a church and say, hey, hey, you know, that's a doctrine of demons? Yeah, churches that are embracing the LGBTQ, LMNOP movement, endorsing same-sex marriage, or, or even, even ordaining gay pastors. Those are doctrines of demons. You are literally inviting demonic worship into your church. And those people that are sitting out there in the, in the pews of those churches, they're, they're literally being taught the doctrines of demons, and they're sitting there like, oh, okay, this must be okay. It's in the church. You know, they must know better. No, they don't. No, they don't. God's church should be holy, as holy as humanly possible. When there's things the Bible disapproves of, the things the Bible forbids, the things that God commands that we do or don't do, then if you're doing anything other than that, then you're wrong. And somebody needs to say that. Listen, the doors of the church are always open. They should always be open. Everyone should be welcome. Doors should be open for anyone who desires to come and meet their Savior. Anyone that wants to meet their Savior should have a, have a place to sit. But then, we must lovingly call them to repent of their sins and to, and to confess their need for him, just like we do with everyone else, just like we do with all of you. If you're, if you're playing around with sin, guess what I want you to do right this very instant? Repent in your heart of that sin. Doesn't matter what your sin is. Doesn't matter which sin is your pet sin. Whatever it is, it's wrong. God hates it. You'll be welcome here. Even if you, even if you don't do that. But I'm never going to stop telling you to repent. And a church that doesn't call their people to repent, and, and in fact turns around and teaches them that it's okay not just okay, but they're celebrating wickedness and evil that's wrong. 
It's a sign of the end. I'll tell you, it's one of those things, I see it, and it makes my heart break. But there's another part of me that says, oh, here we go. We're getting close. The Bible tells us a lot about the end times, but it doesn't tell us everything about the end times. For example, we don't know when the end times are going to end. We don't know what the end of the end times are. One of the, one of the names of the end of the end times is the day of the Lord. This is when Jesus comes back on a white horse and establishes himself as king of kings and lord of lords. When he comes and says, okay, I'm, I'm in charge. He, he always is in charge, but he's going to make that a, a present reality on this planet. He will be in charge, and everyone will bow a knee to him. Everyone will bow a knee to him and confess him as lord. First Thessalonians 5, chapters Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly or completely that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, meaning we're not gonna, we're not gonna, there's not gonna be a big, big billboard in the sky saying, okay, tomorrow at noon, Jesus is gonna be here. It's gonna be a surprise. For when they see peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. We're in that time, of, at, at, using the illustration of the pregnant woman, as labor as, is intensifying, and the contractions are getting closer and closer together. The more we see the wickedness and the depravity of this, of this nation, of this, of this world, the more we realize we're getting closer and closer and closer. And you know, we look at it and we say, oh man, this is terrible. We've got to change all of this. And yes, we need to do our best to try to change it. But at the same time, God said it was going to happen. The end times. There's a, there's a lot of confusion about what that means, what it looks like. And so I'm going to take the rest of our time this morning, and I'm going to lay out a timeline for the end times. To give just a quick overview, you know, we, you know, if you were with me on Tuesday mornings, we spent about, I think it was 18 months going through the book of Revelation. So you can take a long time talking about end times things. I'm going to do it in about 10 minutes or an hour, depending on how that goes. I don't know. Turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9. This is not going to be exhaustive. It's going to be an overview. And we begin with a prophecy from about 600 years before Christ. And this is the prophecy we refer to as the 70 weeks of Daniel. If you've been to the church a long time, especially our church, you've probably heard that term, the 70 weeks of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, <laughs> of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. When God kicked the Israelites out of Israel because of their rebellion because of their sin he promised them he said if you guys won't worship me me alone you don't do what i say i'm kicking you out and as he was kicking them out he gave the prophet jeremiah a word said you'll be out of the land for 70 years and then i'm going to bring you back 
And so Daniel's reading this prophecy and says, oh, we're near the end of the 70 years. And then he does something that's just fascinating. It's a fascinating study, is that, is that he prays. He goes into a prayer, and it's a fascinating prayer. We'll pick it up in verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I mean, he's going all out in his prayers. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even departing from your precepts and judgments. Daniel prays his prayer of confession and repentance. And it's fascinating because Daniel was probably the holiest man in that place. And yet he, he, he lays out, and he does, it, he does it all the way through down to verse 19, this prayer calling upon God for mercy. It's a powerful, powerful message. And then we pick it up in verse 19, which is the kind of the key. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And then here's the, the prophecy. Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain, of my God, speaking of Jerusalem. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, the Jews and Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to re store and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. We have an image here. It should come up in a second. The image of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And the, the angel Gabriel lays out God's plan for the end times. And on the chart, you have this, this representation of this plan. Each week is equal to seven lunar years, 360 days each. So the clock starts in 445 B.C. when a command is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. You see that up there, the very beginning. So that clock starts, and then we have the first seven weeks 
49 years. And then the second 62 weeks, which is 434 years, a, comp a total of 483 years after the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So this, the first 69 of 70 years ends in about, um, uh, well, about 33 A.D., and we, we, we refer to the event, the event when that ends, it says that when Messiah comes. And we refer to it as the, as the triumphal entry of Christ. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it was exactly 483 years after the command to rebuild Jerusalem. We just read this in Zechariah 9.9, the, the way that he would do it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in Daniel 9.26, it says that the Messiah will be cut off, which is an idiom for killed. The Messiah will be killed. And, okay, that's gone now. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> there it is, right in the middle. And then, and then, you know, we know that a week after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, that he was crucified, but not for himself. And, and Daniel's prophecies, not for himself. He died, not because of his sin, not for himself, but for all of humanity, for the sins of the whole world he died. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Between the 69th and the 70th year, so, so we have this, the seven years and the, and, the, and the 62 years, that's 69 years, so there's another week left. The time in between the 69th week and the 70th week is what we refer to as the church age. It's an indeterminate amount of time. We don't know how long it's going to be. We know when, it, when, when the church age began, it's when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. That's when the church age began. But we don't know when it's going to end. And that's the time we're in right now. We are in the church age, the age of grace. While God, in his infinite grace, is giving everyone an opportunity. But that's going to end. There's going to be a day when the church age ends. And the Bible tells us what that's going to look like. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get a description of an event that will end the church age. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul speaking, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, which is Paul's idiom for believers who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we say, we do, right? Say, yes, I do. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That means all, all of those who, all believers who have died from the beginning of the church age until this event takes place will also come with him. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, by Jesus says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, 
who are alive, which could mean all of us, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We refer to this event as the rapture, the rapture of the church, the sudden, unexpected, forceful removal of all believers from the, from the earth in an instant. And we're living in a time where nothing else needs to happen. Literally, nothing needs to happen. We live in a time where it could be at any moment. And if we truly believe that, down to the bottom of our very soul, I believe it would change the way we live. We believe Jesus could be back before I finish this message. Suddenly, unexpectedly, forcefully, all of God's people will be snatched out of the world. What that will practically look like, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but it's going to be good. I'm going to be with Jesus and all the rest of y'all, all y'all, Another chart's going to be coming up here in a second. Sometime after the rapture of the church. Now, we can't be absolutely certain about how much time passes because there's going to be this event. Church age is going on. It's going to end with the rapture of the church. And then there's going to be a, a period of time. It could be short. could be who knows how long. But, but then the 70th week of Daniel is going to begin. And the, the 70th week of Daniel is where the book of Revelation really you know, lays all that out for us. If, we, if you study the book of Revelation, you're studying primarily the 70th week of Daniel. That's, the, that's the kind of the main theme of that. It's a seven-year period that we refer to as the tribulation. You may have heard that term, the tribulation. During this seven-year period, God is accomplishing two things. The first, and and you know, depending on your opinion, what you, what you might say is, is really the main thing. If you look at Daniel, the main thing that God is doing in the tribulation is preparing the Jews to receive their Messiah. You know, as you read, if you go through, if you go through Re Revelation, you get a different sense, but if you take Daniel's interpretation, that's the main thing, to prepare his people for their Messiah which he will present himself. At the end of the seven years, he will present himself to the Jews, and Romans tells us that all Israel will be saved. Second thing that God will do is he will pour out his wrath upon this wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. And he'll do it with a series of increasingly terrible judgments that every one is worse than the last it will begin with a covenant that will be established with israel and that will that will be some sort of a peace covenant with israel and her enemies and that, that covenant will allow israel to do one thing that it really wants to do even today, and that's to rebuild their temple and resume temple worship. And, they'll be, and they will do that. It will also be, at that, at that the ratification of that covenant, 
will reveal a man that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. The Jews will rebuild their temple. They'll begin their sacrificial system again. They'll, they'll go back to a mosaic type of a system, obeying the, the laws and the commands of Moses. At least some portion of Jews will be doing that. And, and they'll be doing that even as God is judging the rest of the world, you know, which is one of those fascinating things if you think about it. The Jews are focused on Jerusalem and their, and their, and their temple worship and, and their animal sacrifices and their priests and all that stuff. And the world is just being beat down hard. And then at the halfway point of the tribulation, halfway into that tribulation period, the Antichrist, with the help of a, of a man referred to as the false prophet, is going to set up an image to the Antichrist, and, and he's going to do it in the Jewish temple, which is as bad of a thing as you can possibly do in the mind of a Jew. And it will defile that temple. The Antichrist will then demand that the whole world worship him. And to facilitate that, he's going to require all of humanity to receive a mark on their hand or their forehead, which is the number of his name. And anyone who does not take that mark is doomed. The other side of that, the Bible says anyone who does take that mark is doomed. So the Antichrist will doom you or God will doom you. You'll have to pick. You'll have to pick. Personally, I'll take whatever the world wants to throw at me to escape God's judgment. The last three and a half years of, the, of that tribulation of the last week of Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel, are the worst that humans have ever imagined. No, and it'll be worse than humans can imagine. There will be things that will be happening during that time that humans have never, in their, in their wildest apocalyptic movie, they've not imagined. And then, the, then they will, the end will come. And it will come as Jesus comes on a white horse as King of kings and Lord of lords and establishes his kingdom on the earth. Bible then tells us that after that, Satan is locked up for a thousand years. Angel grabs him by the neck, throws him into a pit, and locks him in for a thousand years. He does not have the ability to, to tempt humanity for a thousand years. And then the world becomes a Garden of Eden-like environment where even the very nature of the animals has changed. And everyone is allowed to prosper and flourish for a thousand years of perfect peace. And then, Satan is released. That wasn't me, I don't think. Satan is released, and he leads the last rebellion. As great multitudes will follow him in a rebellion, which Jesus will deal with instantly. After the rapture of the church and before the second coming, as, as those judgments that last week of Daniel is taking place on the earth, the church, us, God's people, will be in heaven with Jesus. We will have our, our good 
works rewarded, and then we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be the most glorious thing that any human has ever experienced. And then after that will come what is known as the eternal kingdom, which the Bible says very little about. We're just going to have to wait till we get there to see it. Life on this earth is going to continue as it has, as it always has, until Christ comes back. You know, when they, when they say, oh, you know, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, otherwise the sun monster is going to come and get us. When the experts are telling you the world's going to end, just laugh. No, it's not. Not that way. But if you want to know how it's really going to end, let me, let, just give me a minute. We're not anti-science. We're just anti-whatever they are. Everything in this creation has been corrupted. Everything. And there's a time coming when God is going to wipe it all out. He's going to wipe it clean, and he's going to rebuild it. Revelation 21.1 says this, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God's going to wipe it all out, and he's going to redo it. He's going to make it all brand new again. And it'll be a glorious, wonderful thing. As believers, let's be faithful to this world right now. Let's be faithful to take care of this planet as well as we can. But don't worry about the sun monster killing us all. That's not what God's plan is. He's not going to do that. What we should really care about are the billions of people who don't know Jesus. They're afraid of what might happen in this world. They're afraid of the wrong thing. They ought to be afraid of what's going to happen in the next. They're afraid that somehow their life on this earth is going to end. Well, actually, there's nothing on earth that can stop that. We all will face death someday. It's what comes after that that really matters. That's what we should really care about. Let's care about this planet. Let's take care of this planet. But I, 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 we need to care more about those who will meet their Savior without their sins being forgiven. That's what we should really care about. And, that, and meeting Jesus like that is far worse than what any of those climate experts are saying. Far worse. Going green is not going to save you when you're standing before Jesus. He's not going to ask you how, you know, if you had an electric car and, you know, and, and, and never ate meat again and whatever else, other stupid, I mean, I mean uh, ridiculous, I mean um, whatever. It's dumb. Love Jesus. That's what you need. We are living in the end times. Jesus could come back at any moment. And my response is, Jesus, Lord, come quickly. But let's be busy warning people about the real danger. The real danger is life without Jesus. So what should we do this week? You don't have to go green. Just need to tell somebody about Jesus. Amen? 
Heavenly Father, we come and thank you for this day and this opportunity to get into your word to talk about these things. And Lord, I, I, I know that as I, as I look at the things that people are talking about, that, that people are sincerely terrified about what's going on on this planet and what might come. And Lord, they're, they're afraid of the wrong thing. First, the world's not going to end that way. And that someday we will all, every human who exists on this planet, every single one is going to have to go through the, 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 the reality that we're going to have to stand before Jesus. And most of them don't even recognize that. And so you're calling your church to be faithful. You're calling your people to love you so much that we would tell somebody else that we would warn them, even if they mock us, even if they ridicule us, even if they cancel us, even if they, whatever they might do, Lord God, we gotta warn them. They need to know that we're not, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of what's coming because we know what's coming and we're prepared for it through faith and we want them to be prepared also. And so I pray, Lord, give us a heart to share your truth with as many as we possibly can and to do it as boldly in love as we possibly can. And while we're doing it, Lord, help us to be responsible occupants of this planet, to do what we can to take care of this planet, but also recognizing that you've already determined what's going to happen, and we don't have to be afraid of what these so-called experts are saying. So I pray, Lord. Minister to your people, give us strength, give us courage, give us boldness, give us the faith to step out and to say what needs to be said to those who need to hear it. And Lord, as we, as we prepare, not too long from now, weeks, just weeks away, we prepare to go to the ballot box and vote. Lord, even as Randy said, Lord God, that we would do that intelligently, we would figure out, Lord, you know, how we should be voting, which, which of these bills and, and, and different things that we ought to be voting yes or no to, Lord God, and that we would do it in a way that, that resembles um, your heart as much as possible, and that we vote for those people, Lord God, that are closest to your word, closest to your heart. And we'll never find Christ on the ballot, but maybe we'll find one of his representatives. Maybe we'll find somebody who at least has some leanings in the directions of the things that you desire for our state, for our nation. And so I pray, Lord, give us a heart. Give us the, give us the wisdom to vote in a way that is good and right. But I pray, Lord, I pray for this church, Lord God, that we'd be 100%, that every single person in this church would vote. And that, Lord God, that you would mobilize your people to help change this world to, to stem the tide of evil as much as we possibly can while we wait for your return. And Lord, we, are, we look forward to it. Lord, we, we know that it could be at any moment, and we're excited about that. But Lord, give us, help, us to, help us to have a sense of urgency that it could be any moment, so we don't have that much time, so we need to get busy. Help your church to get busy. Now, I pray if there's anyone here or listening or watching this, Lord, that hasn't made that decision, then the things that they're afraid of are the wrong things. The thing they should be afraid of is meeting you, Jesus, without having their sins forgiven. Lord, all of us are sinners, every last one of us. No one has been born that isn't a sinner. 
And so we need to be forgiven. We need to come to Jesus and ask him to forgive us. And when he died on the cross, he made a way for us to do that. He died for your sins. And when you receive his sacrifice, your sins will be forgiven. So take this moment right now, if you've not already done that, to do that. And if you're a believer who hasn't, who hasn't repented of some sin, do that right now. We need, to, we need to be right with God every single day, moment by moment. And we do that by acknowledging, God, you are holy and that we need, we need you for every breath that we take. We praise you and love you for all that you've done for us and we ask, Lord God, again, give us boldness, give us courage, give us faith to move out from this place and to do what is right and good. We praise you, we love you, and we do everything that we do in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us as we all seek to align our worldview with God's word. If you have any questions on anything you heard in this message, let us know. You can go to calvaryfv.com worldview. There you'll find a place to send us your comments or questions. You'll also find other messages in this series. You can also go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways that we'd like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know if there's any way we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please leave a comment or review and subscribe to this channel so that you don't miss other things that we publish. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.